Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the Riptide. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. Brewers, it's time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think. Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. With me is my good friend, Mitch Steele. Uh, how's it going, Mitch? Going great. Great to be yeah. here. <laughs> ah, it's good to see you. I, uh... I enjoyed chatting with you, and uh, it's been a while since uh, since we've hung out together. Yeah, it's been uh, too long. <laughs> at least a year or two, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I still need to make it out to Atlanta, come see you, hang out. Yes, I'd love to show you some of the great things that are going on in Atlanta beer. It's it's actually a very underrated beer city. There's a lot of cool stuff happening here. You know, you've spent a lot of time on the West Coast. A lot of time uh, and a number of years there in Georgia now and, uh, you know, you're from the East Coast previously. What would you say is the difference between the two, the two beer scenes, East and West? Yeah, it's, it's hard to generalize, but, I, you know, I will say that when I left San Diego, everything was obviously very IPA focused and, you know, West Coast IPAs were everywhere. Hazy's really hadn't started making inroads, you know, in 2016, when I was, I, I stopped brewing in San Diego. Uh, I think when I first got to Georgia, my impression was that they were, uh, the beer drinkers in the Atlanta area appreciated styles, you know, classic styles a bit more than, than where the West coast went. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there were, uh, a lot of Pilsners here, um, you know, some just kind of old school craft styles that were still hanging on. Mm -hmm. Um, there was not a lot of IPAs. Uh, there's, there's one that is selling like gangbusters, uh, in, in Atlanta and that's called, uh, Tropicalia. It's brewed by creature comforts. And that, that beer was one of those beers that was succeeding because of, Number one, it's a great beer, but number two, it's, it was rare for years. You know, they, they couldn't make enough of it. And so when a load dropped at a, at a beer store, it was, people would line up and they'd be sold out in a few hours. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but I, I think in general, my, my perception was that things like pale ales and dark beers and Belgian styles would go over better mm -hmm. in Atlanta than they would have at that time in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And I think the Atlanta market has evolved. Um, and really what I'm seeing now is just, and I'm seeing this everywhere in the country, but in, in, in Atlanta, it's, it's definitely, definitely a real thing is that everybody's brewing lagers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I think there were 28 breweries that brewed Oktoberfest beers in the Atlanta metro area this year. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, think five years ago. You, you might have had one or two breweries that were doing it. And I think, you know, when I was out in the Pacific Northwest for hop selection and I was in Colorado for judging Great American Beer Festival, and I saw the same thing. And, you know, in, in granted in Denver, you know, some of the great 
craft beer bars aren't there anymore, but all the brewers were posting pictures of being at beer stat and, you know, having <laughs> that slow pour pills and, right. and which is a beautiful beer. And, you know, it's, it's funny. I was in uh, a really good beer pub close to my home recently, and they had that beer on tap. They brought it in from Colorado and it was really cool. Um, you know, so uh, I think, you know, there's a brewery here in Atlanta called Halfway Crooks that does all lagers and it, they're killing it. Uh, mm-hmm. They are, people are really, really in love with that brewery and they're great people and they make great beer. And there's a couple of other breweries, you know, round trip that, that does a lot of lagers as well. Um, you know, and every brewery, I mean, we do a lot of lagers. I, right. That's been kind of a nice thing for me mm-hmm. uh, because you know, obviously I brewed a lot of lagers at Anheuser-Busch and we, but it was all the same kind of lager, right? Mm-hmm. It was all variations of the American lager. And now I'm, you know, one of our best-selling beers is a German Pilsner. We're doing a Munich Dunkel that's on tap in our, all of our restaurants all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's been fun, you know, and we still brew IPAs, you know, and right. I still like brewing IPAs, but... I- I think the difference, and I've noticed a similar difference, uh, or, or noticed the same myself, East Coast, there's more of, of those other more classic styles, and West Coast is pretty much all IPAs, but I, what I attribute it to is the proximity of the East Coast to, to Europe, yeah. and you know how easy it is to go from the East Coast to Europe and visit and experience all those beers. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, vice versa. And then on the West Coast, the proximity to the hop growing regions and you know, the influence that has. Yeah, I think that's that's a really good observation. And I, I will tell you that in when we took over the brewery in Virginia Beach and and opened up the tap room, Virginia Beach is a very heavy military town. Mm-hmm. Right. I, it's I mean, it's been built on the military and, and there's bases all over the place there. And, you know, we'd get. Um, veterans or or soldiers coming in and having beer at our place and they love the german beers because mm-hmm. a lot of them were stationed over there and were right. drinking those classic styles and and they're like oh man it tastes like i'm back in germany you know and uh-huh. i mean I, I can't think of a higher compliment for one of our beers yeah. you know that that than that and um it's been cool it's been really really neat mm-hmm. to see you know who also is really neat to see? It's our good friend, John Blickman. Uh, he's out in Indiana. Uh, that's where they do their magic and all the creativity, the, uh, the thinking, the uh, crafting of things to make your brew day better. From the smallest uh, homebrew setup to the most elaborate uh, commercial system, they've got everything in, in between. So um, check them out. If you're, if you're serious about your homebrewing, check them out. If you're wanting to uh, start up a, a brewery, they, they can uh, get you out there too. Good guys. They've been uh, paying for the show for 15, 16 years. So uh, the least you could do is send a nice email, Flick feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com. Tell John Blickman, thank you for uh, providing these uh, wonderful shows for the last uh, 15, 16 years. Uh, today, we are going to uh, do some uh, Q&A. We uh, take questions at uh, brewstrong at thebrewingnetwork.com. You can send your questions in there. We won't answer them in the email, but we will answer them on air as, as we get to them. Uh, and uh, we really appreciate them. If you're listening live, you can also ask questions in the live chat. Go to the Brewing Network page on Facebook 
go to uh, the, the video there and uh, just enter your comments in the, in the live chat. That'll, that'll do it for you. Um, let's see here. First question is from uh, Mike. He says, first, I understand this may be a dumb question. Mike, there's no dumb questions. There's just dumb people. So don't worry about that. Uh, when milling grain in my garage mill setup, the milled grain goes through a PVC pipe into a bucket. A considerable amount of static electricity is produced as the grain flows through the PVC. Could this affect the beer in any way? Specifically, thinking of the effectiveness of finings in the finished beer. I've noticed gelatin hasn't been as reliable of a fining agent for me in the last couple of years. I'm too embarrassed to ask this question to anyone in person. <laughs> LOL. Uh, Mike. Yeah, Mike, great question. I've never heard this question before, but um, you know, my take on it is it, it's a non-issue because that grain, if, if anything, perhaps it's a slight issue as you're doughing in maybe because um, the grains want to kind of cling together or cling to things, you know, and maybe that could produce a little bit more dough balls. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> That's, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm hunting for some effect other than, you know, um, but, you know, once it goes to the mash and it's boiled, um, there's no, the static electricity is gone. The static electricity is, is fairly minor anyways. Um, I don't think you, you should have a problem. If you're really concerned about it, uh, you might be able to um, ground your PVC pipe or replace it with something else like a piece of copper or something. Um, and the, the static electricity should be minimal or go away at that point. You any thoughts on this, Mitch? Yeah, my first thought on hearing this question was that as soon as you add water, to the milled grain, you know, all that, all that mm -hmm. pent up electricity energy is going to go away. Yeah. And um, so I'm with you. I think, I think once you go through the mashing process and then as you go through the brew house, it's not going to carry through. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, grounding, you know, is, is always a good thing. <laughs> you know, right. when you're, you know, I think that's, right. a, that's a bigger concern, you know, is that, mm -hmm. you know, if, if Mike is a smoker, that would be a problem, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that, yeah, static electricity could discharge, get a spark. Um, you know, the thing about grain dust explosions is you need to have an enclosure, uh, in order to build up pressure for there actually be an explosion. If, if the ends of the pipe are open, you're not going to get an explosion. Right. Um, you have to have a certain density of, of dust, um, and it's really thick. It's so thick, you wouldn't be able to see your hand, you know, holding it like a foot away from you. And then you need to have uh, enough heat to uh, cause, the, cause the explosion. So I wouldn't even think that that's an issue. So, yeah, I, I think you're fine. Uh, yeah. You know, you can ground it. Um, it certainly wouldn't hurt to, you know, uh, to ground your uh, PVC pipe or replace a piece of copper or something. Uh, there you go. Good question. All right. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this.
Are you looking for a simple brewing system that's great for all grain brewing, but everything on the market seems to be full of compromises? Blickman Engineering has the answer. The Blickman Brew Easy All Grain Brewing System. The Brew Easy is a complete system with easy upgrades and a beautiful compact design, perfect for any size brewing location. At its core, the Brew Easy is built on two gorgeous Blickman Boilermaker brew kettles, a high temperature March pump, and either a top tier gas burner or the new boil coil electric heater. The Brew Easy adapter lid allows the pots to stack on top of each other, forming an efficient, strong, and compact brewing setup that comes in 5, 10, and 20-gallon batch sizes. Upgrade your BrewEasy system with full automated control by adding a Blickman Tower of Power temp controller and make moving around easy with the Blickman Kettle Cart. The BrewEasy is modular. If you already own a Boilermaker kettle, you can build your BrewEasy by purchasing just the modules you need. The new BrewEasy all-grain brewing system. See it today at BlickmanEngineering.com and brew with Blickman quality on your new BrewEasy. Learning to brew has never been so disgusting. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. I'm here with my good buddy Mitch Steele. We're uh Doing live Q and A. If you have your your questions, you're listening live. You can type them into the uh, the live chat there on uh, Facebook on the Brewing Network page. I can actually see those. Um, uh, Tom writes, "Hey guys, uh, thank you for the thanks for doing this show. This has been very helpful in my home brewing adventure. I've seen uh, Fermentus has the new E two U yeast procedure." Um, which I believe stands for easy to use yeast yeah. procedure. I rehydrate my yeast, so I'm a little skeptical. Is there some kind of new addition to this yeast for non-rehydration, or is this just a selling point? Thanks, Tom. What do you think, Mitch? Yeah, that's that's an interesting question. Um, you know, from my point of view and my experience, the evolution of dry yeast has been huge over the last several years. And so the quality is at a much higher level than it ever used to be. Mm -hmm. Um, Even on a commercial level, we can add yeast dry to a fermenter and and it'll start working right away. I don't think there's any harm in continuing to rehydrate this yeast. Um, You know, and I actually, you know, I I had to look up what E2U was, but, um, you know, it's, it's basically just a dried yeast that they're recommending or saying you don't have to hydrate at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I, I think you could do it both ways without any ill effect, but I think, you know, at this point, a company like Fermentus, I know several people who work for Fermentus. I know what kind of company it is. They do their research. So mm-hmm. I don't think they're putting something out there that is just a marketing gimmick. I think they've, they've done some work and I don't know what they're doing on this yeast. You know, if they're, um, you know, who knows, who knows what they're doing in the drying process or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I would expect that it delivers as advertised. Yeah, I would, I would think so as well. Um, the, <laughs> the whole thing I was going to say, but I'm getting too old. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing on it is, um, I, I think they, they're some of the yeasts they say are not the E to you. Um, uh, variety because the the powderiness of the yeast needs to be right for it, I guess. And maybe some strains don't 
don't uh, powder upright or they're too powdery. If it's too powdery, there could be an inhalation danger, I guess, uh, uh, you know, um, while you're, while you're pitching it, or I think they, they mentioned something about, you know, certain yeast with enzymes, you don't want to do this. You need to be careful, at least wear some sort of protection if you're going to do it. Um, and I guess the dispersal of the yeast across the, the liquid, uh, layer, um, needs to be amenable to, to do that. So, uh, it's gotta be powdery enough. So it spreads out, you know, it doesn't just lay there as clumps or whatever. And, and like you're saying, you know, very smart people done a lot of research, but I'm sure that, you know, what they're saying is, is, is true. The, the difference in dry yeast now to when we started doing this show <laughs> is dramatic. They've made a, a lot of uh, dramatic increases. So I think, you know, you're probably okay if, if they're specifying a yeast as, you know, uh, pitchable as, as is, I think you do fine. I think you do fine to rehydrate it as well. I don't think there's any danger to rehydrating yeast. Um, I think in the past there was some, it's like, oh, no, no, don't, don't rehydrate it because you're, you know, and yet they were still telling the commercial brewers to rehydrate it. It's that, that kind of rubbed me wrong. I think that there was, you know, a mixed message going on. Uh, but today I think they've, they've made the changes and I think maybe uh, the yeast is, is good to go. Good question, Tom. Uh, Kim writes, it is my understanding that you're able to get about eight parts per million of oxygen into wort using air, which should be okay for lower gravity ales. But if you brew higher gravity ales or lagers, you may want approximately 12 parts per million of oxygen. I've also heard mention uh, that yeast consumes most of the oxygen available in work in a couple of hours. So my question is, if you are using air, like an air pump, for example, are you able to compensate uh, for the lower starting concentration of oxygen by re-aerating the wort one hour after pitching the yeast, for example? Does the yeast get enough oxygen for high gravity ales or lagers this way? Or is there some benefit in having a higher concentration of oxygen when pitching the yeast? That's quite a good question. Don't you yep. Think? yep. What do you think, uh, Mitch? So first off, um, if you're using air, the maximum dissolved oxygen you can get in your word is about 12 parts per million. Um, if you're using pure oxygen, then you can get much higher. And it's actually quite possible to over-oxygenate and really stress out your yeast, which you know can result in off flavors like acid aldehyde and stalled fermentations and things like that. So you got to be careful with oxygenation. Um, I think uh, you know the question is is a really interesting one. And certainly there are, are brewers out there that will add more oxygen. Um you know, after, after lag period and, and, and mm -hmm. but before the fermentation really, really gets going, you know, our rule at new realm is if, if the gravity's dropped, um, you know, more than a degree Plato from its original gravity, we typically don't oxygenate brews going into that fermenter anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, because the yeast is already acclimated to having no oxygen. And, and, you know, if you, if, if the yeast, bounces back and forth between having oxygen and not having oxygen, you're not going to get the same fermentation consistency as if you didn't do that. Um, that being said, if you, you know, this question is framed in a way that it's, it's early in the process. And so, you know, if you're brewing a high gravity 
beer and you want to get more oxygen in it, I think theoretically this this could work. Um, you just have to know when to stop doing it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I always um, when when I'm doing something, uh, you know, like over 20 p, I will do a second dose of oxygen. You know, eight eight to twelve hours in. Um, and generally the, it depends. I mean, sometimes, you know, earlier than that, you know, it's, it's before the, the beer really kicks off and before gravity has dropped, like you say, um, uh, more than a certain amount. But, uh, I find that that's really important for, to fully attenuate those big beers. And then when we do something like, um, we did uh, whale juice, which was 18 and a half percent IPA. We, we, uh, it's a sessionable, sessionable 18 and a half percent. Um, you know, you're adding oxygen, you know, multiple times, yeah. you know, during fermentation. It's the only way you can drive that down. You don't seem to get any, you know, real, you know, negatives or, you know, huge negatives from that, especially in a beer that big, you know, much better than it being really sweet. So, so there's that. And then there's also, you know, I, I take from, um, you know, British brewing and in British brewing, aerating your, your beer, you know, 24 hours in is a common thing. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they do the double drop, um, you know, they, they, uh, you know, Burton unions and, uh, and they were, they were trying to get air into the beer. Um, and it's because the yeast really needed it, you know, a lot of, you know, low attenuating yeast and, and the, the flavor is of course different once you do this and you get, you know, more ester production and it's just part of the style. And so, you know, even that's possible. Um, yeah, I think that's an interesting question because even if you're doing, um, air and you're, you're doing, a, an, an ale, for example, the, um, imperial juice yeast, they recommend using a high dose of oxygen, you know, 20 parts per million, um, in your, in your work for that. If you were, if you're using that yeast as a home brewer, I could see hitting it, you know, a, a second time, um, because you know with air because i don't think you're you're getting enough with with air on on a yeast like that so it's going to be yeast dependent um some yeasts uh you know won't be a won't be an issue some yeasts i think definitely you're going to need more more oxygen or more air so a good question i and i think uh you know his technique is just sound if he doesn't have access to oxygen um i would i would i'd pursue that uh kim i'd i'd, I'd go down that road uh, I think it's a good idea. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to reiterate your point, I think it is very strain dependent. Um, certainly, you know, when I, when I've changed breweries, I've had to kind of relearn oxygenation parameters for the yeast that we're using. It's, it's a really important thing. So, mm-hmm. you know, keep that in mind as well. Uh, Adam asks in the, in the live chat that you can, you can go on, the. Uh, the Facebook page for the Brewing Network and uh, ask your questions live. Adam asks, so here's a controversial one for the masters. How do you feel about the state of hype beers? They're now going for upwards of $100 for smaller format bottles, 375 to 500 mil or cans, 12 to 60 ounce, directly at breweries or even higher in the secondary markets, aka the black market. Is this the elevating beer to wine status that some were championing in back in the early days of craft beer wanted, or 
Did that go too far? Recent example is Anchorage's A Deal with the Devil that was just released for a single $375 at the brewery for $70 and sold out in minutes. On Tavor, going for $100 plus shipping with a two-bottle max. And who knows what he'll be going for in the secondary hyper hyper beer zombie circles. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I think one, I think um, I'm sold at the brewery. You know, if, if the brewery is able to make money off of it um, and they need it to survive, you know, uh, more power to them. Um, I was always, it's like, well, fair price for a fair product. Um, so we never really got into the, the hype pricing. Um, but yeah, the secondary market, I don't know. I it's just weird to me. People buy and trade these beers and never drink them. You know, they just, it's like collector's items. And it's like, well, what I get from beer is the experience of drinking it and sharing it with friends and then the memories and, you know, the, the sensory and all that stuff. So for me, I don't know. Um, what's your take on it, Mitch? Well, I, I think I, kind of land in the same place you do. I didn't, I didn't realize this was still going on like it is, um, you know, it's getting but worse. It's, and it's getting worse. So that shows you how out of touch I am. Um, but I'm with you. I, you know, I think charging a fair price for the beer based on ingredients, based on the labor that's used to make the beer is, mm -hmm. is a longer term business model that I think really works, you know, for these breweries that have created these hype beers and they get the long lines, more power to them. You know, I, I think they've struck gold in some ways, uh, and I don't know how they did it, uh, but, um, you know, sometimes that's, that's something you need as a business to ride out and experience to its fullest. But, you know, from my point of view, I don't, I don't seek beers like that out. If, if I get to try one, great, uh, but I'd yeah. rather just go down to, to a pub and get mm -hmm. a glass of IPA or get a glass of Pilsner and enjoy it, you know, and, and right. like you said, the experience is all about it, you know, beer trading, you know, I'll send, I've, I've sent beers, you know, to friends and things like that, but I've never really gotten involved in beer trading like a mm -hmm. lot of people have. And I, I get it, you know, if you're looking, for, you know, you want to bring in, you're in new England and you want to bring in this super rare beer from San Diego. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I get it. You know, but, but then drink it for God's yeah, sake. Drink, drink it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah. yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's an interesting question. And uh, you know, the, the beer business continues to confuse me. Uh, <laughs> 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 you know, who knows what's going to happen as it confuses us all. <laughs> All right, let's take another short break. And when we come back, we'll have more of your questions right after this. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. All right, we're back. We're uh, here uh, live with uh, my good friend, Mitch Steele. We're answering some of your questions from uh, the submissions to uh, the uh, Bruce Strong at thebrewingnetwork.com. I knew I'd get it right eventually. And uh, also from your live chat, Adam has been quite active. He's uh, got another question is, what are your favorite techniques for dry hopping right now to get the most aroma and flavor out of your IPAs? 
I'll tell you, for me, it was wait till fermentation's over. Yeast have settled, harvest the yeast, add the hops, and then recirculate. Um, it would recirculate for about three hours and then uh, let the hops drop, get them out of there, and centrifuge and package. The recirculation just made a world of difference. Yeah, we, uh, we bubble CO2 up through the bottom of our fermenters to try and resuspend the yeast. And we do that three times before we allow the yeast to settle in the cone and then chill the tank. And I, I'm with you. I still think a post-fermentation hop addition is money. You know, that's, that's where you get, if you're looking for classic hop character or really how the hop expresses itself in a beer, that's, to me, that's when you would add it. If you, if you add it later on when the, when the beer's cooler or chilled, you're not going to pull as much material out of the hop. Um, mm-hmm. And if you add it earlier, then you're going to get biotransformation and some other things going on that you may want, and that's fine. But if you just want pure hop, that's when I dry hop. And agitation, I think, really maximizes your your yield off of your hops. It gets yep. the most into the, into the liquid. Uh, Jim asks, Jamel, looking at your great pics of pubs in the UK on Facebook. I was wondering if you think it would be possible to recreate the great British pub or brewery feel here in the U.S. What would be missing? Well, this is interesting because a buddy of mine, uh, uh, Matt Thomas, he built a uh, little British pub in his garage. He had a tandem garage, and uh, I was helping him remove uh, a water, old water heater and uh, we were going to put in a instant hot water heater. I said, well, put the instant hot water, hot water heater outside. And then you freed up all this space. I said, and then turn this into a British pub. <laughs> Most people would be like, eh, you know, not him. Within minutes, he's thinking that that way. And by the next day, he's like putting up walls and uh, building this thing. And he's got He's got, I mean, the wallpaper and the and the tin ceiling and the, you know, it's all, it's beautiful. It is a, a British pub. And uh, I will go over to his house sometimes and we'll go and we'll sit out in the pub. And it's just like, you know, hanging out with friends at the pub or, you know, it's, it's yet it's still missing something, you know, that British pub experience. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I think here, you know, we're just a bunch of Americans in a pub and <laughs> the experience is a little different. Whereas in, in, in England, you go to the pub and just the other people, I, you know, I talk to people I've never met before in, in a pub in England, and it's just the most wonderful experience. You know, you, you just start, uh, you know, uh, joking around a little bit and yeah, everybody freely gives it back to you and there's no no offense taken and it's just fun. Here in the US, you got to be a little more careful about that, I think. I don't think so. A lot of I think the British pub experience is the British people. I think that's really what what brings which makes it something unique in the world. Yeah, I you know, I'd agree. I, I think you know, the people that you interact with in the pub is a critical part of the experience. It, you know, and I was I was going to mention that that the um, the bar I was talking about earlier that was pouring the beer stat lager, mm. they recently built a um, a British pub in a corner of their building, um, and and this is a really neat place. And they did a 
really authentically, you know, wallpaper, pictures of English royalty and, Mm -hmm. you know, a painting of Michael Jackson, the beer writer on the wall, and they've got four beer engines. And, you know, when we started New Realm back in 2017, 2018, I had big ideas of having a cask section and Mm. trying to, to build a British pub in one of our event rooms. And, uh, it didn't work out for a whole lot of reasons, and, sure. and we ended up not doing it. But now I can drive 10 minutes and get to what I consider to be the closest replication to a British pub that I've experienced in the Atlanta area. Um, and it's it's really done well. I mean, they treat their beers well. They, they always have Sierra Nevada Ale on cask. Mm-hmm. And then they bring in local brewers as well. And, and there are some brewers in the Atlanta area that are doing a great job replicating, you know, bitters and and other British beer styles that, you know, you typically don't find anywhere. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and you go into that place, it's very cozy, right? It's, uh, it probably has eight seats in there. So mm-hmm. you're always sitting next to somebody. And, and <laughs> so the conversations just happen naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that, that's pretty close. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's not the real deal. And I think, I, I think just sitting in a, in a room with, uh, British or Scottish people mm-hmm. and having a beer and listening to the conversations with, with the dialects and the accents is a big part of it. Right. Right. Yeah. Built this British pub, my friend. And uh, so I started homebrewing again. I started producing uh, real ale, you know, uh, great uh, British bitters and stuff. And, and uh, I've been, uh, you know, filling pins for them and <laughs> take it over there and, invite everybody over and uh you know just a few of us will kill that in a couple of hours <laughs> and it's Perfect. just fantastic i mean I'm, I'm i'm killing it on on brewing some of these beers uh i i know you'd be impressed oh i would love to try them I, yeah. you know i i think you know a big factor in this is the low alcohol of the beers in those mm-hmm. British pubs too you know right. it's i mean that just leads to being able to hang out longer and and mm-hmm. having uh, good conversations and, and, um, you know, and I think that's, that's an element that I'm starting to see creep back into American beer culture, kind of lower alcohol sessionable beers, but, you know, in England, that's the normal, I mean, if you get a beer over 5%, you're drinking strong beer in England. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's happening more and more with the, the new breweries that are starting up and, you yeah. know, everybody's brewing West Coast IPA or hazies or, you know, and it's all six, seven <laughs> percent. I I remember I'm back like, oh, in, you know, you're killing you're killing England yeah. for me. We in back in 2009, we went Steve Wagner from Stone and I went over and brewed an IPA and it was seven percent. And I went back with Greg Cook for the release party that was at a Weatherspoons pub in London, a beautiful, you know, refurbished bank building that had been turned into this huge pub. And there were a lot of English brewers there that had participated in this program in this event. And there were so many of them that wouldn't even try the beer because it was right. too high in alcohol. Yeah. They're and, just like, oh, no, no. Yeah. They're like, ah, I'm not, I'm not going to drink that. And I'm like, you're not even going to, you know, like a one ounce pour. You don't even want to try it. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I'm driving, you know, or. <laughs> right. Well, put the case today. Um, yeah. Yeah. I was, I was in Edinburgh in, in 2000 or or so and um i was at a pub and they had old peculiar on i'm like ah you know and, and it was tasting fantastic i'm drinking pints of that and i'm hanging out with these other guys 
they're drinking something around, you know, high twos, low, low threes. And we're pint for pining on this. And they are just, <laughs> they're like, oh my God, how can you even drink that? You know, it's 5%, it's 5.2 or whatever it was, 5.4. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm from California. This is this is session, session ale for us. <laughs> you know, that's funny because, you know, when we originally proposed that first beer to brew uh, for the Weatherspoons chain, we wanted to brew a double IPA and they said no. And <laughs> so we, we, we compromised. We weren't going to do anything that wasn't stoned, right? So it was mm-hmm. going to be a 7% beer. But Steve proposed the name California Mild. <laughs> which if if you've ever met steve wagner he's got a great sense of humor he's he's very funny in kind of a droll quiet way and and yeah. uh i i that just made me bust out laughing and <laughs> yeah. yep uh, that rings true let me tell you quickly about my good friends uh up near reno uh brew chatter it's a great homebrew shop lots of fresh ingredients everything you need uh, they even have distilling equipment in there if, if you're into distilling or want to want to learn to distill. Lots of knowledge. These two guys know a lot about brewing and a lot about customer service. Go check them out. Great, great folks in there. If you stop in, you know, tell them hi from me. Just say Jamel sent you. Uh, well, they'll know who I am. Uh, good folks. I'll be up there in November, and then Mitch is coming some someday, and we'll all we'll all go. Yes, someday. We'll go, we'll, go, we'll go check them out. Uh, John asks in the in the chat uh, where you can you can ask questions if you're listening live. Uh, John asks, Jamel, I remember you, you said one of your biggest things you can't live without as a pro brewer is zinc. I brew 10 gallons at a time and usually north of 1050. The reusing yeast and or building it from starter is almost always necessary. When is the correct time to add nutrient and what nutrient should I use? So the correct time to add nutrient um, is gen- well, uh, I mean, there's when it comes to like yeast additions, uh, zinc additions and stuff, there's people who actually add them to the fermenter because if you add them during uh, the boil, um, a lot of the zinc will get trapped up in the troop. Yeah. And it'll, it'll cut about half of your zinc addition out but then zinc is cheap and then um the the reason that i never add it to the fermenter is because it's a powdered product and um the process of making powders uh generally involves blowing a lot of air and so a lot of times they're not uh necessarily going to be flawlessly clean there could be bacteria or wild yeast in there just from the from that process so Powdered things generally kind of look out about adding those uh, to the cold side. So for me personally, I would add them to the hot side. You can add it towards the end of the boil, um, last 10 minutes is fine, 15 minutes. And uh, as far as the, the correct nutrient to use, I would use something that does contain zinc, especially if you're repitching. Uh, you can also just get some zinc supplements. Um, and add some of that, or you can maybe find a local brewer that's willing to give you a little bit of uh, zinc. The thing not to use is something with a lot of uh, fan, because if you put too much fan in, 
unless you're you're doing something with a lot of adjuncts, if you're doing something like a mead or something that fan is is very useful. But if you add it to most barley based grain based uh, brews have plenty of free amino nitrogen. And so if you add too much, it can really accelerate the fermentation and can uh, end up in something that gets very hot and uh, does not taste too great. So be careful there. Um, to follow up, do you need to add anything to the starter? Um, you can, uh, it certainly doesn't hurt. Just don't overdo it uh, because in, in too high concentration, uh, the zinc and the other uh, materials in the nutrients can be um, uh, harmful to the yeast. Um, but uh, yeah, um, I used to use uh, servo, servomyces mm -hmm. uh, to my starters. Um, and actually what I would do is can starter wort. I would add my, my, uh, Nutrients to the, I'd add DME, nutrients, water, and then put in the pressure cooker. And then I'd sterile work with, uh, with all the nutrients needed. So, uh, you got anything to add to that? No, I, I agree with everything that you just said. Um, you know, most of the, most of the commercial yeast nutrients that are out there and available do have a significant amount of zinc in them. So, mm -hmm. you know, those, those are tried and true. Um, and yeah, I think it's, you know, safer to add it at the end of the boil. Um, you are going to lose some of it, but it, like you said, it's not that expensive and, you know, um, but it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty valuable thing to add, especially if you're doing high gravity beers, um, you know, and, you know, I'll tell you, there was a time at Anheuser-Busch, and I, I don't know if they're still doing this or not, but yeast settling in, in Anheuser-Busch lagering process was controlled by zinc additions in the brew house. Because zinc, um, the more zinc you have in the in the wort and in the resulting beer, um, it enhances yeast flocculation. And so one of the things that we monitored every day was cell counts at 10 days in lagering. And if they were starting to trend high, uh, we would add more zinc. If they were starting to trend low, we would, we would decrease the zinc. And, mm -hmm. and that had a huge impact on, on the yeast health and, the, and just the conditioning process that was happening in those lager tanks. Right. Well, and you can certainly, you know, boil some uh, zinc or, make yourself up a jar of, you know, sterile zinc water or whatever nutrient yeah. water and add that to the fermenter. Mm -hmm. uh, that'd be another way to go. It's just the extra effort. <laughs> it wasn't worth, you know, the juice ain't worth the squeeze <laughs> as, they, as they say. So yeah, there you go. Ron, I think uh, he says he brewed a Belgian ale, uh, 12 gallons screwed up on the recipe. Recipe asked for four ounces of special B. I put in four pounds. The rest of the recipe is 14 pounds Pilsner, two pounds Vienna, one pound wheat, and Y-East 12, 14, three pounds of sugar. Any thoughts on how I can make it drinkable? <laughs> Haven't tasted it yet. Three days in the fermenter. Maybe blend it with a pale ale, dilute with water. My thoughts are it's going to taste like a caramel candy bar. Lots of hops, noble and American. Maybe dry hop with a bunch of citra. And thank you for making me a better brewer. I do all my shopping with your sponsors. Well, that's what I need. 
Um, I would taste it first. Um, you're talking about uh, what twenty percent? Yeah, twenty percent special B. Yeah, it'd be all right. Um, special B. It does have kind of a figgy, caramelly thing to it, but also surprising amount of almost roast flavor that kind of balances, adds kind of a dryness to it. I would taste it first and see. Yeah, you never know. You'd be surprised. And that would also inform you as to what kind of change you wanted to make on it. Um, whether, and you could, you know, certainly try diluting it in the glass and see if that helps. Um, I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I mean, it may thin it out, but yeah, um, it's going to thin out everything. Um, you know, blending it the, the traditional way that you know a commercial brewer would do it is to brew another batch. You know, using probably just all the other ingredients except special B, and it would be you know. Uh, Ten times the size of this batch, or whatever, it would be. <laughs> and then you would, you know, blend it in there, you know, little by little. Um, yeah, whatever other beer they were brewing, you know, as they're brewing this, they would leave out the special bee and just dose a little bit of this into their regular batches of that until it was all gone. Um, I don't know uh, that, or you just chalk it up to a loss. You know. Yeah, I'd, I'd try it. I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, the famous story about Arrogant Bastard Ale was that Steve, when he was homebrewing the test batch, did a mistake, something like this, where he added too much of one malt and he was going to dump it. And then Greg tasted it and said, why would you dump this? This is the best beer I've ever tasted in my life. And then, boom, they had Arrogant Bastard. So mm -hmm. happy, happy accidents in the brewing world can sometimes result in something Right. Really wonderful. And and so I would I would taste this before you make the call on what to do with it. I think um, you know, blending with a with a lighter beer might help. I, I'm not sure about the dry hopping because it looks like you use Belgian yeast in this. Um, and I'm not sure if that would, you know, all those flavors going on would would work well together, but you can try it. You know, mm -hmm. it's yeah. Right. And uh Mitch isn't saying it, but I'm saying. Uh, Eric Bassett has a whole ton of special B in it. Special B in Chinook. <laughs> huh? Yeah, I still huh? can't comment. <laughs> yes, I know. No, yeah, but we cloned it. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> you can go back to Can You Brew It and uh, just check it out. Just check. Uh, Sean asks, gentlemen, I know that the CO2 produced during fermentation is harmful to yeast and you want to make its way, you want it to make its way out of the beer and out of the airlock. I also know that to ensure good attenuation, some brewers rouse the yeast by rocking the carboy. I was thinking, what about having a stir plate under the carboy with a stir bar set a relatively low RPM in the beer to keep the yeast suspended and help drive out CO2? Once the beer has experienced terminal gravity, you just turn it off. Am I on to something or am I just a dipstick? Thanks for all the years of great information shop. I've heard this, you know, uh, multiple times before. Um, I would not do this. Um, if, if what your, if what your goal is, is to get, um, you know, quick attenuation and maximum attenuation in a ferment, then certainly this would, this would work and this would help. But 
it's, you know, what you're trying to produce is a flavor that has been produced for, you know, many thousands of years. <laughs> and the, 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 there's certain expected uh, flavors. If you, if you remove the, the, the CO2, you'll get more esters, you'll get, you know, um, and again, you know, a, a different character to the beer than perhaps is desired. So I don't think you really gain anything from it. I think you, you gain more from using that stir plate to make sure you have enough healthy yeast before you start pitching enough healthy yeast, um, you know, monitoring your temperature, things like that, you'll get the best beer possible. Have any opinion on, on this stir plate idea? Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, you're going to get a faster fermentation. It's going to finish a little bit lower than it would under natural circumstances. I don't think that CO2 in, entrained in the beer during fermentation is a real issue or risk to the beer. I mean, there are brewers that that go to full carbonation in their, in their lagering tanks and, and with no ill effects. Um, so I, I think, um, I'm not sure that this is a real risk for you. Um, certainly, you know, rousing the yeast helps when your fermentation is lagging or stuck. Uh, but part of that is bringing air back into it and, uh, not necessarily CO2 toxicity or anything. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, really where you need to make sure you don't have CO2 is in your yeast and in your yeast culture. And if you're propagating yeast, it, I think using a stir plate is a great way to do it because you don't want that CO2 sitting in there while you're trying to grow yeast. Mm -hmm. Adam asks in the chat, if you could go back and start over as a pro brewer with your own dream brewery and not factoring in market demands, what size brewery would you have? Brew house and tap room size. What would you brew? I'd brew beer. What size? I mean, you know, not factoring in market demands is where the question kind of falls apart for me because if I'm not factoring market demands. I would, you know, just maybe homebrew or, or I'd brew, you know, a thousand barrels at a time just so everybody could have free beer. You know, <laughs> that's what I'd do. If I, if I won the lottery, I've said this multiple times, if I won the lottery, I would open a, a brewery tap room and the beers would be the, the cheapest I could legally sell it for. In California, you have to sell it for the price that it costs you plus a certain amount. If I didn't have to do that, I would just give away free beer to everybody. I'm just like free, free beer tap room. Just come on in, hang out, have some free beer. But I think you have to factor in market demands. I would probably set something up if I had to, to do it over, I would set up a smaller place, you know, maybe, maybe as many as, you know, a hundred seats. And I would have like a, a 10 barrel probably with some double and triple fermenters, maybe a 10 barrel with, you know, uh, if it got busy room to add in, uh, you know, separate mash louder you know pre-run and whirlpool and all that so you can just quickly turn out multiple batches in a day that's what i would do how about you mitch i think i'd probably fall in that same range of size you know 10 barrel yeah. brew house sounds really good 
I would have a music venue uh, or at least a, a good stage go. and a PA system in, in the tap room. Um, you know, it's really nice to think about just brewing beers that I want to drink, mm -hmm. um, you know, but I've never, never approached brewing that way, but it, it's fun to think about. And I know brewers that have done it. And it's this it, thing it, called home brewing. Yes. Right. I could teach you. <laughs> um, yes. Um, yeah. Well, I, no, that's I, the I thing. Mean, I, I wouldn't yeah. sell it outside the, the, the tap room at all. It would just be, I mean, there'd be beer to go, but. I wouldn't worry about distribution. In the oh, I would, I would run away from distribution yeah. as soon as I could, if this was something that could work. Yeah. Zero <laughs> distribution. Yeah. That's, that's the key. That's the key to happiness. Zero yep. distribution. <laughs> whatever, whatever it takes to not have any distribution of beer. That's what you want to do. You want to, you know, the smallest building or the biggest or whatever it would, would take. That's, that's what you're looking for. All right. Uh, one last quick break, and uh, we'll wrap up uh, with your questions right after this. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. All right, we're back. Having a fun, fun time talking uh, about all sorts of things based off of all your interesting questions. You guys uh, never disappoint. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Jeff asked, esteemed experts. Did you know you're an esteemed expert? You you are. Oh, that's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have uh, recently moved to the beautiful land of Costa Rica. However, it's a veritable barren wasteland of beer. But that said, my aim is to go native. I have recently discovered Carao, 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 I don't know. Cassia grandis, available at the Saturday market, is similar to honey in viscosity with notes of chocolate and cherry. Minor side note, it is also referred to as stinking toe because of its pungent aroma. <laughs> Although it's, I think there's a hop called stinking toe. <laughs> there should be. <laughs> yeah. Although its medicinal properties are well documented, a search of forums, AHA, Northern Brewer and the like, have yielded nothing on the topic. I'm considering it as an adjunct or creating something that resembles mead. Do you have any experience or insight into the particular ingredient and how to best harness its stinking power in the name of booze? Best, Jeff. What a great question. Yeah, you know, my thought is, you know, it has uh, medicinal properties. You just need to be aware of the, the levels of of safety on that because some of these things that have medicinal properties if you overdo it could be harmful so you just want to be careful about that the stinking toe thing um you never know how it's going to turn out once it's fermented once it's boiled yeah. and fermented you boil it you ferment it you drive off a lot of the volatiles and um you know the yeast can transform it into something else uh maybe maybe great it may go with certain hops i mean maybe maybe quite nice you know People associate certain hops with cat piss. <laughs> and if people enjoy that, they could enjoy a stinking toe beer. I'm just saying. <laughs> so I would, I'd just be, I'd be careful on that. I'd, you know, check to see what the um, uh, points per gallon uh, gravity you're going to get out of this. So you have some idea, you know, just throwing it in and see how much sugar there is. Try to figure out how fermentable it is. 
you know, maybe do some small scale tests just with that and some water, you know, boil it, boil some, ferment it out with a clean, like a 01 yeast, 1056 USO5 yeast, um, and see, see what it tastes like, see what it smells like, and uh, kind of match up your other ingredients to go with that. Sounds, sounds fascinating. Chocolate, you know, notes of chocolate and cherry, similar to honey. Yeah. It's, I've never heard of this, um, this ingredient. I, it, it sounds fascinating in a lot of different levels. Uh, I think um, <clears throat> brewing a beer with it, I would do that before I brewed something like a mead. Um, just because you have the boiling process, you have other ingredients, you have, you know, things that if it, if it does retain its stinking toe character in an unpleasant way, at least you've got some other flavors to balance it out. And, and that would be a, a, you know, after you do water trials, that'd be a good first test for it. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, it's always alcohol, so you still drink it. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) stinking toe beer hey next night when this comes for hop naming i'm ready to call something the stinking toe i think that's great i think i think i'll get with our marketing people and get that registered right now there you go (laughs) it's it's a winner i guarantee you everybody would want to try it once yeah and then they probably wouldn't they would think it it stunk too much of toe and you know regardless of what it smelled like the names names have a lot of impact on yeah uh, they do on the success of beers all right that's our show for today thank you all for tuning in thank you very much uh mitch Steele. Uh, thank you our, our honored guest to, to join me um it's a lot of fun uh if you enjoyed this please make sure to uh reach out to our uh, sponsors blickman engineering uh, you can find a BlickmanEngineering.com, email John Blickman at uh, feedback at BlickmanEngineering.com and uh, tell him how much you appreciate the show uh, that we do uh, since he's paying for it and shouldn't have cost you a penny. Uh, so enjoy. And uh, our good friends at Brew Chatter up in Reno, uh, where they're just great guys, a lot of fun to, to visit. Even if, uh, even if you don't brew, it'd be worth stopping and saying hello and and having a, having a pint with them. So until then, everybody, uh, brew strong.